Tokyo 2020 was late and probably suffered in its build-up with uncertainty and opposition from some locals due to the COVID pandemic. Our hockey teams appeared to be stuck in Perth, with no international opposition available and I don't think I was alone in worrying about our prospects against the big European teams, fresh off an exciting Euro 2021 championship. I was wrong. The Kookaburras and Hockey Roos each performed exceptionally well, the disappointment of finals losses notwithstanding. Welcome to the Camberwell Hockey Podcast. This week, Wansey and Andor return to host. David Wansborough, of course, is an Olympic champion himself and is currently transforming our Women's Premier League group as head coach. Lachlan Anderson heads up high performance for Hockey Victoria and is head coach of our men's Premier League group, currently playing great hockey and sitting at the top of the Victorian Premier League. We're super excited that the guys are presenting, fresh from Tokyo, Kookaburra's assistant coach Anthony Potter and Hockey Roos assistant coach Katie Allen. Potsy is a past Camberwell State League player, plying his trade in the Don Argus era. You can hear more from Potsy with Colin Batch in Series 1, Episode 8. K.A. is a Commonwealth, World Cup and Olympic gold medalist and member of the Australian Women's Team of the Century. She was, I believe, the first female head coach of a Victorian men's Premier League team, winning a Premiership in her first year. You can hear more from K.A. in Series 1, Episode 12. Keep listening to hear all about the Olympic campaign with our two great coaches giving insight into everything including preparation, selections, opposition analysis, shootouts and the village vibe. There's no chapter markers in this episode because it's so good. Just play it through. Here's Wansey. Welcome to the Campbell Hockey Club podcast. David Wansborough speaking and um, today really fortunate to have online um, a couple of our Campbell associated people that were in Tokyo recently in Katie Allen, who was assistant coach of the Hockey Roos, and Anthony Potter, assistant coach of the Kookaburras, who both did both teams did exceptionally well. And with me as well, Lockie Anderson, uh, Camwell men's Premier League coach, uh, and also Hockey Victoria high performance coach. So I just thought today was a great opportunity. The club thought a great opportunity to talk to a couple of people who were at the um, you know, right in the mix in Tokyo and we all here in Melbourne, as I've talked to Katie and Potts about it, we all just loved watching Tokyo. It was an incredible Olympics a month before it. People were probably a bit lukewarm, didn't really have any great interest or stars to identify with or teams they didn't know that well. And by the end of it, we were in love with lots of athletes, lots of teams, um, including the hockey team. So you know, today's a really fantastic chance to pick your brains and um, find out about it. So I might kick off, Katie, and just ask you, obviously the Hockey Roos made the papers for a long time there with um, you know, what was clearly a difficult preparation in many ways. But I was just interested more to ask some questions about more broadly about the preparation. How long out does an Olympic team start preparing um, and what does it look like? Obviously, you're based over in Perth last couple of years. Just some thoughts around how long it took because lots of people ask that how the athletes um, prepare preparation for us I guess is you know it's over years but um, if you look at um, last year you know we started January you know ready to go um, with a, a, a squad and and got into sort of internationals pro league everything was as normal and then um, with yeah COVID hitting and we shut down the whole program, as with everything else that, that happened 
at that time and we sort of went our separate ways for a couple of months. And then, you know, we kicked off again in Perth. We were very lucky in Perth that we had, you know, the opportunity to train pretty much normally um, for that period of time for the rest of the year. Uh, we didn't get any internationals, but we did a lot of training and I think that's probably um, in some ways was really difficult for a lot of people um, and especially those older athletes. But for a lot of the younger athletes and our core group athletes, we actually got a chance to train together and improve and work on things that you don't normally do in an Olympic year, so more individual and, you know, team play, but um, not that tactical side and we weren't preparing for games. So it allowed us actually to spend six months um, and in the club environment, putting all those things into practice, you know, we played, everyone played club the whole, that whole season. So we, again, we're really fortunate. That's something that some of the other states haven't had. Um, so we, I would consider that part of our preparation. We, we really um, had six months of, yeah, individual, you know, small group work and spent some time on our, you know, fundamentals and, and um, some of those principles of play and, and, uh, and some of the decision-making and all of those things around our play that needed to improve. We sort of identified lots of those things that needed to improve and we had a chance to do it. So probably six months of that, um, we had to have a selection camp at the end of the year, so in November, December, um, to select a new squad. So we had that bigger number of, of athletes come in from the broader group, um, development squad athletes, younger athletes, and had a selection camp to, to select the new squad. Um, and then it all started again, really, um, at the start of 2021 this year. So, yeah, for me, that um, that laid the foundation. Um, we then had very limited, we had no internationals until until April, I think it was, or May it might have been even with New Zealand. So, again, we had um, a chunk of time where we were based in Perth. Again, we could train fully you know, in a hot environment, which, again, helped our preparation for Tokyo. Um, we really got to hone in on on um, the things that were important for our team um, and we probably made that decision about, well, we couldn't have international games. It was all up in the air so we needed to you know, do as much as we could. So we had a couple of camps that um, where we invited extra athletes in from other states to fill two teams. So we had, you know, we found our games that way. Um, we also played the under-18 um, WA boys quite often and the mixed teams um, with them. So we sort of scheduled them in like internationals. So we basically planned our year out like we would have had pro league in, you know, weekends or during the week and, you know, put them through that six-month period um, leading into Tokyo. And then we managed to, it was really lucky, we got some games against New Zealand. We got to go to New Zealand, which, again, was probably a really handy thing for us to prepare some of the travel, we hadn't travelled for so long. So to actually get back and and be at an airport and, you know, travel, take eight hours to, you know, travel not far, um, even though it was New Zealand, we, you know, got on a bus and had to go, you know, to the country regional area in New Zealand as well. So there was a whole lot of that that we had to get used to. So I think that really stood us in good stead. Um, so that, you know, we played uh, five games against New Zealand there, uh, came back and played them in pro league as well so that sort of um, helped us with that was leading into selection so basically for us we got to see people in international level and they you know those those games held a lot of weight um, for selection more so than they would normally um, but yeah that the preparation really involved 
you know, selection camps, camps, games, training, uh, and, you know, that international towards the end, that international competition. And um, then we travelled to Darwin leading in, or twice we travelled to Darwin um, to, to really look at our preparation for, for heat and humidity. We, um, you know, really honed in on a lot of our strategies for, for how the, the athletes were going to cope with that, preparing, you know, training in the heat, uh, training over time to get used to all of those things. So it was sort of, yeah, competition-based, training-based and heat-based. Um, so we got a lot of things done in that, that whole preparation, even though we didn't have international games or not many. Sounds like a lot of organising. Yeah. Um, okay, on that quickly, so obviously there was a lot of um, a lot of moving parts and traditionally like all of those things are set out well in advance. How did that go with the just the constant rearranging and plan C, D, E, F sort of coming to fruition? Because that's certainly one of the things that we're becoming well-versed in down here is that the constant change and then how that helped galvanise your group in terms of just being more resilient to all of the things that pop up. Yeah, it's exactly right. We, we had you know, a number of different contingencies for each, you know, each scenario. Every time we had a camp or we were trying to travel somewhere, um, we'd have op- different options. Um, yeah, we had to adjust when, you know, even when we were going to we're down, we didn't know whether we could get there because it was a lockdown in Perth and, and we had to um, change and not train for a week. Um, so, you know, there was, um, which probably does, <laughs> relative to Melbourne, it's um, not a lot, but I guess in an Olympic preparation where every week is sort of scheduled, you know, some of those things, um, yeah, could definitely have thrown us. Um, and, yeah, but I think probably the year before helped us with all of that. You know, we, everything was changing all the time and, and we probably got used to that a little bit um, and were more like, if there's an international game, it's a bonus. We had a better approach to an attitude to that. We weren't reliant on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it still throw like still throws people. People are still looking for certainty, but at the same time, yeah, I think as you said, we we actually learnt a bit more about being patient with things, not having all the information, being okay with that sometimes, and just doing the best you can with what you've got. I think that attitude whether it's through the coaches, staff or the athletes, like really appreciating when you've got what you've got, when you've got it and doing the best you can with it. And I think that's probably something we needed to do as a group and we needed to improve. And so then, yeah, the Olympics in the end becomes something that's that's easier because you've done a lot of things and cope with a lot of things in the preparation. Yeah. So. And just on that, Potts, um, obviously a lot of similarities for you, the men. How did you find when you got to Tokyo, did you ever ask yourself, I wonder how we look in preparation, not so much compared to the other hockey countries, but the Australian teams, other the soccer teams and things, did you get a sense of how much you'd been through to get there and how much effort it was that you were probably as well prepared as, as anyone? Because of the um, the village set up and the building, the Australia building, the conversation come up through coaches quite a lot. And, you know, you talk to the swimmers, they had uh, – a lockdown in towns for when they were there a few days and had to move to Cairns. Uh, the basketball or the water polo guys were in um, Hawaii. There was an outbreak there, so they were locked down and th- they were actually a bit touch and go if they could get uh, into Tokyo at one stage. So um, 
everyone over the last uh, 18 months has really learned to adapt from you know meetings changing to trainings to to even logistically getting to Tokyo so what what come out of it is is we've done in these times pretty much everything we can there was no point complaining and i think the whole of australia and everyone in work and business and school has learned uh, complaining is not going to get you far now. It's, it's how good we adapt and, and basically get on with it. And that was a pretty good motto around the um, around the Australia village, I, I sensed. On the games that KA um, was mentioning, obviously they got to play the under-18 under WA team and you know, a variety of mixed groups. A little different on the men's side, not having necessarily uh, an opposition that are at the same level as you. So how did you guys get your match practice aspects in you know you got a squad of 27 plus a few extras in and around but how did that how did that take place for you guys when we got back together and started training again um, we were a little bit uh reversed to what ka said because we invested a lot of basic upskilling to the group in the years prior so we went straight into more match scenarios uh, and while the guys were off uh rob I and colin worked a lot on um ways of play and uh, oppositional way to play. So because of the 27 guys in that squad, we only needed to invite two or three guys down to play a match. And we would simulate um, and train opposition way of play to play against Australia or Australia versus uh, an India, so to speak, or an Argentina. It's completely different ways of play. And we needed to be more adverse in coming up against Argentina uh, and they play slow, 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 and then all of a sudden Lopez will do something really quickly, um, but you get caught asleep. So we would have a week's theme on Argentina, uh, and then we'd flip it and do a week on another team and another team. Before you know it, you know, two, three months have gone by in the program, uh, and we would consistently review that with the guys. So maybe, what you know, the Tuesday I would do the, the with ball play against Argentina, Rob, would cover without Colin was looking over the broad picture of all the times they're covering both sides. Um, and we were just getting the guys to have more knowledge of opposition teams that we would come up against in Tokyo. Well, that was my, my next question is that obviously if you're immersing those athletes into the way of play that the opposition are likely to be playing against you, um, certainly it must have a greater educational piece as well around, well, this is how they do it. You know, how do we flip that to you know, combat how that's being played against us? What are the ways that we can attack it? What are the ways? Where are the deficiencies? Where are the efficiencies? Yeah, there's a great belief in the way of play that we have in the group. So we, we never – we have what we call a DNA. We have our DNA, our non-negotiables, and that's also – you know, with ball and without ball. Um, and then what we learned to do is adapt it so we could have a basic structure of 4 2 one, three. Uh, And on a paper, you know, you can write any structure you want. And, and we do that often. Uh, but then we start tweaking it to get at certain players. And uh, for, for a, a term, I used to always find the lazy guy. right? And I know that's, that's no disrespect to the player or they're not – good international players, but they might their turn and chase might be poor. They might give away more corners than other guys. They um, don't position themselves well on the build-up. So you're breaking down a team's way of play and then also picking on people that let their team down that don't actually know it. 
So with the Pro League games going on in Europe, we could find and watch these games and then put that back to the group. There has to be a buy-in from the group, of course, and the, the, the guys were really good in these themes over over a period of months to, to get at opposition teams. I'm just going to jump across to the um, the selection side, Katie, without getting into yeah, details because it's the same for all groups, but it's the most intense thing, I guess, when you've got Olympic selection, men, women, um, any sport, and with hockey being different to, say, a, a swimming race or a rowing race where you've got these times, it must be hard. I'm just interested in is there a, a way um, – you know, obviously the athletes over there uh, know they're in an intent, elite environment. It's competitive. I'm just more interested in the process and what can you do in these situations. I've been uh, doing the, the Women's Premier League this year. It's probably the most difficult part I find is actually, uh, you know, week-to-week selections and things. Do you have any sort of broad policies, both you're interested in both Potsies and, and, um, and, and Katie particularly, just around um, that period must be a difficult one for the, for the coaches and, and, and staff? Yeah, well, yeah, it is, um, but it's a it's an ongoing process. So, you know, firstly, we've got to have a really clear um, criteria, cl- um, clear understanding, and uh, of our way of play and and what positional requirements are of that, and what are our demands of those players in those p- particular positions. Um, what are the um, the specialist skills that we need? You know, the areas that. Um, the impact on the game, all of those things are really um, well understood and that it's important for the players to understand those things and, and what we're looking for in those different areas. Um, but as I said, then it's ongoing. So, you know, because we've got, yeah, games, training, you know, international matches, you know, all of those times are, you know, where we're, we're selecting, assessing, you know, keeping notes of players, you know, we have a you know pretty thorough record keeping you know our individual plans for the athletes so we're keeping track of those every um, three or four months we have um, meetings with athletes around that so they understand where they sit um, what areas they need to work on what areas they're they're strong in the group Um, so having good individual understanding of what's required um, you know what they're trying to work on you know how that works and how that plays in with our team and, and what the team's trying to do um, and then we also, yeah, started doing selections within the program anyway. So we had, you know, selections for games versus the under-18 boys. So we, to start with, we played everyone in the, the you know, we played you know, even even teams um, and that then we started to select a group um, from you know, each week because that was something that we felt that there was missing because normally with Pro League you, you're selecting, you know, every couple of weeks a team so people are getting that assessment of where they sit you know what they need to improve on and there's an urgency to it versus we were finding well you know everyone's getting a chance we're giving that opportunity to everyone but actually they're not knowing where they sit and they're not feeling that pressure of selection and so we needed to bring that into our into our program Um, but yeah then I think it's it's having an independent uh, um, and balanced group so we had an independent selector and the, the coaches the three coaches as well um, I think that having different voices, different um, understandings of the game, different biases um, that you have, you need to then cancel them out and really challenge each other. And I think we had a, um, in both panels that I was involved in, we had you know, a really thorough approach, very detailed people, very analytical, um, very um, 
open to challenge and and to talking through what we wanted who would give us that you know what about this what about this scenario if you lose this person in terms of flexibility um, so always challenging what you think is the right group at that time I think that was something it's a it's important as a as a panel so it's having an having a clear criteria, it's having ongoing assessment and, and communication with athletes so they know where they sit um, and then coming back to a, a panel which is, you know, detailed, um, you know, challenging each other, um, you know, looking at everything, going back over all of the footage that we have um, and then, you know, taking time to select. You know, that for me it's something that, you know, really needs needs time and it can't be rushed because, you know, it's it's – players in, and people investing a lot of time into into their sport and so you need to pay um, yeah pay that uh, and and do the right thing by the athletes and really being thorough in that process as well and what about in Tokyo itself um, obviously the differences in numbers of players and you could rotate players out that's different to normal where I think you had 18 and then in fact 19 players so that that must have been another different angle to it yeah, and that came very late. Like that wasn't the case. We had um, originally a 16 and two emergency players that were field players and then one emergency goalkeeper. Um, but that changed um, just as we came into, well, just before the Olympics. So we had very little time to, to get our heads around that. But in some ways it was how we operate normally um, with 18 players. Um, so we just couldn't have 18 you know, on the field, rotating through on the on the day, we had to select that sixteen. Um, but yeah, I think the it just you know it just became a, an assessment each each time in each game about you know how the form of the athletes that we had there. Um, we had our sixteen that was selected, so you know that you know you generally that was the best group that we we had deemed at the time. But then we had you know a couple of people had some niggles through that, so we then managed them through couple of games so the first game and our last round game um, and we were really confident with the two that were, were coming in and, and being able to rotate through um, I know yeah Potsy they did that as well um, so it was a matter of just assessing at the time if we were um, needing to sub someone in because of injury you couldn't really keep them in 16 you can't you can't sort of rotate people in and out and have them play less you know it's really important that everyone can play in, especially in the heat um, so it was more around that um, and than, than necessarily subbing all the time um, through that, that was just assessing each game. Potsy KA mentioned obviously a lot of chat there about like positional requirements and the demands of, of sort of um, around selection. So how did you guys, how do you break down your group in terms of your um, you know, number of strikers, midfielders, obviously people that can play across both lines? Looked a little bit like in the final there that Flynn was playing up front for a little bit or whether he just rolled forward. But certainly how do you guys break your squad of 16 down into you know, strikers, defenders, midfielders, et cetera? Oh, every tournament we play is 18 and the Olympics is 16. So, And not many people actually knew that pre-Olympics, like with the selection process. So we, we had to, in our thought process, 18 months out, we wanted and we were moving towards, we didn't want guys to have on the left half and that's all I play. So we needed multi-skilled and multi-talented line players throughout the group uh, to get through uh, the, the, the conditions in Tokyo. No one's 
you know, we actually ended up playing with 18. We didn't know that because we didn't have the glass ball in front of us. And as KA said, I think we found out 10 days before Tokyo started that they were actually Olympians. Um, so we needed multi-line players, i.e., um, if you have a look at our back line, uh, you had, uh, what was it, Dawson, Hayward, um, Simmons could all play as a free man. Uh, you had Ockenden and Simmons that could play upper line also. And Ed could play actually three lines up. Same with Wetton. He could play up Ogilvy, Beal, and then the strikers could actually come back. So we were t- trying to counteract. If there was an injury during game time, we could just move the lines around. So Ogilvy was actually picked as a defensive midfielder. Uh, Tom Craig got injured game one. I think he played the whole tournament as a, an attacking midfielder slash striker, uh, which is just a credit to him but also the group because we had to move other people around. Uh, then uh, it gets tricky that you need um, penalty corner runners, posties, guys to clean up. Uh, you need trappers, guys to push out. Um, we had a huge focus on rebounding, and you saw, I think we scored four goals from rebounds yep. and corners, which is just phenomenal. So you need to get all these guys in the 16. Um, there's no point picking, you know, four awesome strikers and this, and then you've got no one to push the ball out. Uh, and, and you see other nations, the amount of corners they mistrap. Now, yeah. I'm not privileged to their selection process. We didn't want to be that team. Oh, it's a great team, but you couldn't trap a corner. And then you got two of the best corner flickers in the world. Or Ogilvy's one of the best posties. Sharp's a great postie. Zalewski can go anywhere on the PCD. So you've got that adaptability within the, the selection. I reckon in the first three or four games, Flynn saved at least two or three ones that had beaten the goalkeeper. Yeah, the first two against India he saved, like, you know, quick pull shot to the boundary for four, which is fantastic. <laughs> and that was – we really celebrate moments like that in games. Yeah. And that's that's part of, one, uh, Flynn, is, it's two, the Rob invested a lot of hours into those guys. So Rob looks after PCD, I look after PCA in getting them – positionally better, but also their basic technique at a world standard to, to able to make saves. You don't accidentally make those saves. It, it, a lot of training goes into that. We needed to to adapt. We lost uh, Tom Craig uh, quarter three in the first game, I think. So we went through the tournament uh, with 17 because we had Tom in rehab. And once the tournament starts, uh, we couldn't bring um, bring anybody else in. So that adaptability and the, the skill the guys had to play multiple positions was fantastic. I think the game's going that way anyway. Now, just quickly, on the, on the PCA, PCD, PCD side of the, um, the women's program, um, like how much time did you invest in, in both of those? Because like the PCD side, both on the men's and women's programs at the moment, just seems to be so good. Like it's, I mean, it's world class just purely by the fact that you're in the in the group. But um, they're very, very efficient at sort of at keeping opposition teams at bay, which is really good to see. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, like Pot said, um, you know, we weekly invested time and, and blocked out time for yeah, PCAs, but also um, PCDs. Sometimes it's neglected. Um, and we really focused on um, that you know, competitive skill-based and doing work with the goalkeepers and posties. So 
um, just repetition and 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 having that time um, in a more technical session, but then also the um, the competitive um, contested um, you know running what uh, an Olympic team that we're playing against. So we had the teams that we were playing in the in the round, um, and we were focused on them in particular weeks or particular variations in particular weeks. So we try and really um, target and simplify and then run it competitive with extra gear. Um, you know, Rob was really good and we've organised extra gear um, that both teams use, sort of little mini goalkeeper pads that um, you, know, you put over your, over your normal pads and then your, your um, little kickers that you put the runners. So, so they're, not, they're not running... Um, any different than they would normally they run with extra gear um, but then it's also gives confidence to our penalty corner takers that they can flick hard or high or um, and not injure people and I think that's a, that's a credit I've been part of groups where we've practiced it competitively but we've got people injured prior to an Olympics um, you know that I mean that can happen anyway but for us we needed to practice because we weren't playing against those teams and having internationals where you know, you're having to do it under pressure. Um, you know, we do a lot of work work on that and just refining over time. And I think that, yeah, in, in the end pays dividends. There's a real confidence in the group um, and you've that flexibility. You've got a number of people that can come in and, and do that role and are confident in what they're doing. I think, yeah, having done a lot of work on it, yeah, they're confident to, to execute when they need to. It was interesting with the groups, KA, like, because we would do a, a PC live, and it's, it's on the board, PC lives, um, and it was full on. But the guys, and I'm sure the girls really enjoyed it, because it was match scenario, and there was actually a little bit of bragging rights going on a bit towards of, the a end. bit of chip. Oh, plenty, and which is great, <laughs> which is great. But as Ka said, what we were able to do is um, we had four variations for every team we played, and that was right through to the final. That corners we could use if needed. Um, and we're, I was really fortunate with Blake and Jerry uh, and the rebound quality uh, that um, we didn't need or use a corner. That If we got that last, uh, what was it, the referral against Belgium, we were going to do a, um, a tricky one um, because no one would suspect at that time of the game with 44 seconds to go, I think it was, that you'd do a, a variation on a corner. Um, but it was a really great learning curve for for the groups to run live corners against each other. It's typically Australian. No one else would do that in the world. A credit to the guys and the girls. Just on the jump to Tokyo now, the actual the, the tournament itself, Katie, um, back here, a lot of hype. Uh, the media grabs a, a team when you win five games and assumes that it's, um, if you're winning five, you, you win your next games straight away. But we all know Olympics don't hand out gold medals and they're, they're hard and it's sort of no surprise that... Um, in, in some ways that you get these sorts of games, the history of the games in hockey shows that time and time again. Um, clearly, India, you know, lifted their game and, and um, competed probably harder than than they than they had been. Um, I, I heard some sort of feedback, as you do, um, via our, our, the brilliant young Victorian Amy Lawton, that she came home and she was she felt embarrassed after 
Tokyo. And when I heard that, it just resonated in 88 for me. We, we were almost identical, one or five games, and people assumed that we came fourth. And it was a really humbling, um, humiliating experience in your own mind because you're a competitive animal and you'd gone there to to win a medal. I don't think people understand that necessarily, but hockey teams go there to win a gold medal, not just a medal. Um, how, how are you feeling about it? It's very soon. It's very, in some ways, raw. Um, but when you assess it, I mean, this team, again, five games to win five from five initially was just a fantastic achievement in itself. Um, how do you then look at sort of the the India, the learnings from how, how tough it gets, that whole quarterfinal things, you know, pretty brutal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And look, I think, um, I guess the, yeah, we were gutted um, and that disappointment is definitely still there. And I think having having progressed through the tournament and, and put a pretty consistent level together, um, you know, yeah, winning games, but I think just building um, through the tournament, um, that's what makes it even harder. Um, if we'd been a bit off and a bit hit and miss and 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 really not at the level against some teams or had really bad quarters or you know you, you could sort of um, I guess in the end it would be hard but you you almost like well we didn't play well enough so to to play well enough and and to be given you know, you got that opportunity it was right there for us you know we were first rank playing a fourth rank team and you're in the other pool I mean we that, that's the thing it's right there for you and then it's gone and it's so abrupt um but you know it you know it coming in um, and it's really hard to it's really hard to replicate um that um that must win you know probably the last really pressured game we had like that was Olympic qualifiers uh, and that's in 2019 and whilst a lot of that group were there um you know it's it's uh, when you're in a game and it's hockey, so it's low scoring, and you know you miss a couple of opportunities. You know it's it's um it's hard to contain, and and um yeah, it, in the end, you know these things yeah happen, but to have that happen in a quarterfinal is devastating, really, because you build up um for so long to get to that point to put yourself in a position to be playing well enough to to really compete and. And win, like you go there to win, like that's what we went there for. We we um, we had the group, and we had everyone playing at that level, and um, yeah, it, that's that's what's devastating. It's very hard to to reconcile at this point. Um, you know, spent two weeks in quarantine, kind of um, with your with your own dark thoughts and and opportunity, I guess, to really go through everything and try and process it, try and make sense of it. And you start to do that, and I think it, it helps a little bit um, to to do that. But it's also more frustrating <laughs> looking back at things and going through. I've gone through each game um, in detail, and uh, yeah, you, you start to get things from it. There are little things that come through, and you go, "Okay, okay, maybe we really should have done this." Um, yeah. I think there's no doubt we analyse more in defeat. Than when we win, you know, if you go back and look at your gold medals, you know, you yes, you 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 reflect back and love the lovely moments, but you don't tend to go over the the, the little horrible moments when you win. It's um, just the nature of sport, but it's no more brutal than the Olympics is. Um, you know, it, it's um, you, just, you can never enjoy the victories enough when you go through the pain of what you had to go through. But I think again, from afar, people actually understand what went into it um you know what you'd been through to get there anyway as a group so i don't think you know we 
outside of the group, I think people just admire actually what you achieved and probably hopefully the, the positive is there's a burning desire for a youngish group to um, progress forward in, 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 a, in a sport where it's four, three to four years is a long time. You, you need some drive to keep people going that long, I'm sure. So hopefully that's the, the positive. Oh, yeah, just uh, I guess, yes, it, it probably that end point of where you get to is is that it is um, a group that, a core group that will probably continue and and that are building and I think it, it's sort of an unfinished story, I think, that um, that's how I see it and you, you've got to do a lot right to get to an Olympics and perform at that particular time. I've heard coaches say in all different sports, that's the, the challenge of getting it right at that particular time. And whilst we didn't do that, I think um, with a bigger picture, eventually you get through some of the hurt and and there's a real, there will be, I think, a drive that that's not enough and that we can do better and we've got to take that, what we did and where we got to, you know, further and, really, and as you said, detailed learning from it. You can get some great, stuff from from really hurtful situations if you can put it into practice and do something about it do something with it um, versus blaming someone or worrying about it or you know just leaving it and going oh that's just a bad memory I think um, that's the challenge of the next we've got three years really and there's a world cup and com games next year so there's there's lots of things I think where where they can drive the group can drive towards um, and yeah if they do that I think yeah, there's only good things for that for that group it's it's really a you know, a, a work in progress, I think. No, thank you. Um, I've got I've got one for both of you, really quickly, um, and I'll come back to the Tokyo thing. But the obviously, we've all got friends who are um, non hockey people, um, and trying to explain the game to to non hockey people, which usually comes around sort of you know every two to four years when the Com Games are on or when the Olympics are on, um, the shootout. So the one on one shootout situation. I've tried to find another example in a sport where a skill is used to define a game that doesn't take place normally inside that game as a rule. So we've got a penalty stroke in hockey. Obviously, there used to be penalty stroke shootouts. We don't have a 1v1 take place in the game at any other time. It's sort of the equivalent of deciding a basketball game by a half-court shot. Like it's, you know, it doesn't exist in another capacity. Yep, it's unique about our game, but what are your thoughts on on where the shootout sits versus, you know, because the shootouts can go for sort of another 10 or 15 minutes versus playing a 9-on-9 nine nine or 7-on-7, seven seven, dropping players down, like we've sort of done a variety of different tournaments over the journey to sort of best utilise the skills that go into our game. And I know we train them. I know we prepare them. I know we upskill our goalkeepers and our field players and so forth really well in that because it is a rule. But is it the best way to to finalise our games? I think if you ask Belgium, that that they would they they love the rule because they've won a, a World Cup and an Olympic gold medal on shootouts and scored one goal. So yeah, there there was a lot of talk around it, mate. And and I I actually really like the the skill of a shootout. And I I think if if crowds were permitted, it'd be really really entertaining. Uh, if you, if you don't get over the line with shootouts, it's always the worst way to lose. Uh, but if you go over your years of experience, and we've lost games, onesie on, uh, I remember we used to play 15 minutes extra time and then another 10, you'd play a game within a game and then go to strokes, and that was a bad way to lose. So 
if you take the emotion out of it, it it's a great skill and a great spectacle when there's people in the in the stadium. Um, for me, I don't really buy into it's a rule and, and we have to train the train the skill because it's the rule of the game and, and we get into it. Um, I heard there was a lot of talk about, yeah, the Olympics should be extra time. Uh, again, that's up to the, the powers to be to, to make the rules and, and I will teach the athletes to bend them and uh, get the most out of it. But I, for me, I, I don't mind it, the, the shootout skill. Um, uh, we, we beat Holland. That was the first time we'd won a shootout in a long time. So that was uh, – Gave our group a really a lot of energy going forward. Okay, what about you? What about the, the women's program? Yeah, look, I think um, I, I like the the concept because it's um, although it's not a we don't have that particular thing in the game. You know, we definitely have you know opportunities to beat a goalkeeper, you know, one on one, and and so it's a skill. Um, you know, it's under pressure, so you're having to deliver it in a short period of time. Um, yeah, and you, you can practice it and um, and become just like a penalty corner. You have it, you know. Have a we've had exceptional goalkeepers um, at the skill, you know, at the the one on ones under pressure. Um, so it becomes a weapon for you. You can drive confidence from that. Um, but yeah, as Potsy said, there's no there's no easy way when you're drawn. You know, there's got to be some way to decide it. And yeah, penalty strokes extra time, you know, golden goal, taking players off. You know, there's, there's, yeah, it's difficulty in all of those things. Um, but, yeah, I think probably for TV and for, for crowds, it's a really good thing, um, a real interest, which, you know, we need the sport needs to keep driving and, and um, you know, having a point of difference as well. So, yeah, I don't mind it. Just interested sort of a bit of the fun side of things. I guess it's not that much fun when you're coaching and you've got the stress of a, of a games, it's never the athlete might have a day off. They can try to soak it in. But tell us a bit about the village, sort of more of a lighter side of, um, you know, the observations I heard from from um, previous games that the likes of the Paddy Mills are incredibly inclusive and got right into the Olympic spirit, and that obviously flows through the whole Australian Olympic team. That must be such a brilliant thing. You could see it from afar. There seemed to be a great Australian team spirit in the in the village pots. Yeah. I th- um, being my first one, I was, you know, I'd asked the guys a lot about the life, and because everyone talks about uh, the distractions within the village, but again, the the new COVID time, the the Australia building was set up to to make Team Australia a real team. Doesn't didn't matter what sport you played, um, and you know, every morning you'd go down for a coffee, and there'd be, you know, Patty chatting or. Yeah, you know, Susie O'Neill come and sit on your table. So everyone had a genuine interest in our sports and how we were going, uh, which was awesome. Um, they also put a gym and, and a recovery centre in the car park of the building for us so we didn't have to, to move around the village. They were quite strict on um, where you were, where you're mingling. So basically you spent all your time in your building or at the front of the building mingling with Australian people then you'd go down and have your meal. So from what I gathered from past Olympics with the entertainment and 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 the noise that comes and the buzz that comes around the village, that, that wasn't there. There was still a lot of excitement. Uh, but if you go back to Com Games, how, you know, every afternoon there was entertainment, there was ice cream stands or something going on, that, that was um, uh, not uh, in Tokyo. 
Oh, you had your own barista, Katie. Is that right? The Australia flew in their own barista to the for the team. Yeah, um, just downstairs with Potsy was saying at the the base of the building, just outdoors. Um, it was pretty hot there. Um, beautiful conditions, really, for sitting around if you weren't an athlete. Um, so yeah, they, they um, a couple of guys would uh, be down there permanently all day. <laughs> They'd have one one hour lunch break. Um, but yeah, just making coffees. I don't reckon the line was ever, um, yeah, ever shorter than about four. Um, there's always people there, and there was a whole lot of deck chairs down there as well that um, you could, and two TV screens. They always just had the the um, different sports on on the different channels playing as well. So you could just sit down there, have your coffee, um, you know, chat to people if you wanted to, or just watch. Um, watch some of the, the sports there. So it was had a really good feel. Like I think, um, yeah, the, the nature of this, you know, the fact that the Australia building was pretty much all Australians and, you know, it was high rise so everyone sort of would go out and be down the bottom, you know, get to get to get air. Um, yeah, I think it, it ended up playing into our hands really at having a, creating a really good feel and, and people just made the most. I think we went in thinking it was going to be really bad, like we would be in our rooms the whole time. And, you know, there would be very little interaction and there would be um, very little sort of looking at the village and interest. I think it, it probably was all a bonus for us in the end and actually they did an amazing job, certainly the AOC, but I think that the, yeah, Tokyo committee and, and the Tokyo people and, like, it was amazing. Like, they did, they pulled off uh, an incredible Olympics and you really didn't feel like it was, I've been to others, but... Oh, like it was incredible. Like it felt amazing. Um, the only difference was was the crowds, but I think you know there's still the pressure and the games and the people and the, all the different countries and the fact that people really valued being there and appreciated the fact that we got to do that um, and represent our countries. Like I think that part of it was even more special. Um, and yeah, the, the village itself sort of had that feel. I reckon as well, just people appreciating being there and. And getting out and about, it was a bit. It was right in the middle of Tokyo, so it was you know you had the harbour around it. Um, you know we got, um, you know it was pretty nice, a beautiful setting um, as well. So I think yeah we got more than we bargained for in the end. And pots, how tough physically um, on TV doesn't always show the heat, but you know how would you compare? It seemed like a lot of again non hockey people couldn't believe how many games you seemed to play. The great thing for our point of view is a game every day. You know, female or male game on, but it must have been very demanding. Yeah, it was it was really hot, and the uh, I, I think you can learn to play in heat, but the humidity drains you. Uh, and um, if you played the afternoon games or the night games, the humidity intensified and went through the roof. Uh, um, so our recovery was huge, matey. Um, constant chatting with the guys so as the tournament went on with the the heat and the humidity and and the efforts that we were requiring the group to go through um, our rotation window was was basically a guide um but we had we the guys were really open and honest and if you watched um tom wickham's goal i'm just trying to think of the game uh he played one minute and 18 seconds uh, ran up and back four times, scored a goal and just ran straight off. And that was a six-minute shift. But we needed that honesty with the group to to succumb the heat. Otherwise, we just were going to run ourselves into the ground. Um, 
just as you know, normally they were losing three, four kilos a game, and you were playing back to back. So again, you go back to where we started the conversation: the ability to adapt to positions, and the, you know, the free man played longer. I think Ed Ockenden used to play a lot in the last quarter uh, because the way we played, he didn't. Uh, um, he basically didn't get out of third gear in layman's terms. So uh, really hot, really good that we are in Darwin the week before, before uh, Tokyo. It was quite warm there. Um, again, the guys, you know, we've got a lot of country kids in the team that have grown up in heat and humidity. So uh, you adapt pretty quickly, you get on with it. There was no excuses. The guys really enjoyed it. I don't know. The girls seemed to really enjoy the heat too um, when you're up beforehand. The, the funny thing was was the reflection off the blue field. So that, um, you know, you, you, put, you put sunburn cream on your face, but then you, I found you're putting sunburn cream under your chin and, you know, because it was just burning off one day. Um, we come off, we played that midday game and we were really burnt under, under our chins and the side of our faces from the heat off the ground. That's why it's always good to have an extra couple of them. Um, over to you, Locke. <laughs> um, quick one. Uh, with, obviously, with all of the different programming and stuff that goes on in, in all the states and territories around the country, we're going to have sort of you know, 10, 11, 12-year-old kids now wanting to represent their country in Brisbane. Um, what, are the, what are the really simple go-to things that, that you two see as the, as the, the basic building blocks for, for what they should spend their time on? You know, in the in the downtimes when they've got you know no one else to go and play hockey with sometimes and you know they can go down to the local park and have a hit or you know what are what are the things that that you guys see as the sort of as you mentioned before Potsy the DNA the non negotiable type stuff about you know whether it's basic skill level ability to be able to do particular skills and things that are emerging in the game. Uh, is that for beginners, like kids that are taking up the game now that well, want to kid, go no, on? No, kids, kids that are certainly, you know, from our point of view, anyway, like an under-13 sort of state-level hockey player, um, you know, they want to go on to – I mean, they clearly don't have to be a state-level hockey player. There's a lot of lot of development between 13 and, a, and an Olympian. But, um, yeah, the ones that sort of are already playing, you know, what are the things that you guys go, we just need you to be better at this point at X, Y, and Z? Yeah, not like any ball sport, ball sport, when you have the ball, the, the ability to pre-scan is huge. Um, so if, if you want to pre-scan, your, your basic skills have to be at a level to give you an opportunity to pre-scan. So the way you carry the ball, like for me, what the main thing is you need to love the game. You need to love what you do. You need to love the training. Um, so if you can get that in your system and continually build your basics, and, and I've said it before and, and it's quite – I find it interesting moving back to Australia when I mention basics all the time. People say, oh, yeah, everyone's got basics, but we actually don't. Mm. Because we have these idols and we play so many ball sports in Australia, we want you know, we want to kick goals like Eddie Betts and we, we want to do stuff like the netball girls and we want to swim like this person. But people don't realise that, that their basic technical skills are elite. So we need to find ways as coaches and, and, and states to make learning basic skills really, really interesting and maybe competitive in a, in a way. Then once they, they build this this elite basics for their age group or, or for their, their, their skill level, that, then the game technical, tactical part comes more important. 
you you can't go to you you, you cannot go to an Olympic Games if you don't have elite basic skills. Mm. And you know, Ka mentioned it before. We've done it with the boys. We've invested many many hours over a long period of time to actually get them their basics to a world class level. But we can do that at an under thirteen level. We can do it at hooked onto hockey at down at the Wellers on a Saturday. You know, you teach kids how to dribble properly, and you teach them how to pass. Then you teach them how to receive. That 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 learning never never ends, but it gets better with better people around you. And as you get older, uh, the game gets faster. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with um, with Potts. I um, I think that attention to the quality of what you do, of the fundamental things of the game. Like we've had conversations with the, the guys, coaches, and. And, and us and, you know, the people who can, yeah, carry and feed the ball, pass, you know, push pass off both feet, you know, in both directions, they can, uh, enables them to eliminate as, <clears throat> eliminate as well, um, you know, be aware of their surroundings, you know, those things are receiving, um, receiving in different situations under pressure. I think being able to recognise when and be aware of where your defender is, if there's no defender, if there's a zone and, and you've got a time to receive, um, you know, all of those things, um, paying attention to it. I think as an Australian culture, we're probably pretty gung-ho and we just attack and we'll defend and we'll do it all with lots of vigour and, and we don't necessarily look at mastering things um, and really paying attention. And I think we're behind some of the other nations in that, but I think we've made some real grounds. Uh, we've made some real ground in that in both the men's and women's um, and that love of those those skills. But um, you know the ability to yeah make really good decisions. I, for me, I'd add temperament to that. Um, it's a hard thing to change, but you know you see the players that play well at international level. Um, you know, Caitlin Nobbs, Carrie Somerville, you know, Renata Taylor. They're they're um, the ones. Um, you know, Fleano will be um, Eddie Ocken, and they're they're really composed um, in under pressure, and they love that environment. It's, it's like they have time. It's, you see it in other sports as well. And I think that composure, um, that sort of level temperament where they're not phased by things in the game and the situation that they're in, you know, when you're 1-0 down versus 1-0 up or they're just doing the same thing and they're, they're executing what they need to do and they're seeing what's around them, um, you know, regardless of what, what's happening. And I think um, that's really important, you know, the ability, their temperament to cope with, not being selected, you know, a lot of our players, you know, over time haven't been selected. You know, that that team, the majority of that team hadn't been to an Olympic Games or had been out of the team at different times and back in, um, you know, had been injured. We had a couple of long-term injuries, <clears throat> people coming back from that and that ability to, to stick with it and stay the course and have your own sort of your own approach to things and not, not determined by whether I'm in or out, you know, hate the coach, not... You know, just you know, keep keep going and actually um, have real pride in your own performance and your own development. I think you know, coping with those things. You know, we talked about the environment that we're in now. You know, you have to be able to cope with things, and you have to be able to look at oh, what can I get out of this situation and what can I do about it. And that the people that do that, the athletes that do that, <clears throat> exactly the same as everyone else in life. They're the ones that that actually make the most of what they've got, and they end up performing really well. Less not necessarily the yeah most talented or or the ones that um, you know have all that, those skills sometimes it's the ones that you know are able to learn and 
and apply things and and remain composed. Um, and for me, that that's something that um, you know you see at the top level, but you see it at every level. Um, and that, I think that's something we can continue to develop. We don't necessarily, you know, challenge our kids that much in those areas of just yeah, staying the course and dealing with different things. And probably now we've got more of an environment where we can do that as parents and coaches. Flint Ogilvy was a really good example of if you, uh, you remember the goal he hit against India off his right foot. Yeah. His right foot hitting was atrocious, and he won't mind me saying that. Um, but he came to me oh, probably 12 months ago, uh, and during the warm-up, uh, and we spoke with Colin, he, so he wouldn't do the warm-up with the guy guys. He would come down one end with me, and we would do five minutes of just receiving the ball, hitting off the right foot. And it just shows here's a guy that's pretty close to world-class player wanting to get better at a basic skill for his level. And all the, you know, the five minutes add up over days, weeks, months, years to then we regain the ball and he cracks this right-footed shot in the corner of the net at the skill level was unbelievable, the speed he did it. And the ball hit the side of the, you know, the keeper was never going to get it and he had the line to it. Uh, and it just shows to anybody out there that practising, you do get better at skills. Uh, and you just got to change the the way you practice, but it's a great example of of you know a really good player developing his or her game to be better. Thank you guys for the insights have been just fantastic. We've been really privileged to um, hear from you. I'm sure even now through quarantine, hopefully out soon. But that's been incredibly tough in terms of your whole couple of years of prep to be to be lumped with that must be difficult. So appreciate you guys making the time i think um for the hockey people out there if they haven't you know i think it's still available on the seven plus app but um some may not have watched the women's final the the dutch argentina game i think it's one of the best games of women's hockey i've ever seen um in terms of the technical ability the drama itself holland looked like they'd always win but argentina who australia had beaten during the pool games to their credit you know played really well in that final it's just a, a remarkable game of women's sport i thought i thought the men's final was incredible um I did send a note to Colin Batch just to say people don't understand when you're in a gold medal game facing the a team as good as Belgium and you've really had a tough first half where Belgium have played nearly perfectly to come out in your eighth game in that heat to then turn it around and to start you know coming back at them I thought was just one of sports great efforts if you had have actually won the game people would be just remark talking about how amazing that effort was and I think that stuff can get lost in the detail of results and um, and, and medals, but I thought it was just incredible. And I think all hockey people are just really proud that they're associated with a, two teams that did as well as they did. Um, so great chance to acknowledge you guys, the contribution you made, um, and to the wider team. And um, Locke also heavily involved in those programs, bringing kids through and players through. Has everybody felt like they had a tiny bit of ownership in um, in the Tokyo performance? So thank you from the club particularly and all the best, um, you know, for the next, uh, whatever the future holds in terms of the elite programs for all, all three of you. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate the chat. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Camberwell Hockey Podcast. We'd like to send a big thank you to our hosting team, our guests, and you, the listener, for your support. If you enjoy the show, please give us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is recorded and produced by Camberwell Hockey Club in Melbourne, Australia. 
If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, please find us on Twitter at Camberwell underscore HC or see more information on our website, camberwell.hockey. See you next week.